What's up, Awakened Human? I'm your host, Angel, and you're listening to Lit Up For Life, the podcast. I'm on a journey to discover what truly lights us up, to bring you everything you could ever want to know about building ecstatic confidence and truly soulful self-esteem. I'm here to gather and share all the practical tools and support you need to awaken the fun and free force of nature that you were born to be. Let's go deep. What's up, what's up? For today's episode, I got to sit down with Zahara Zimring. Zahara is a liberation artist. She's also an expert evolutionary astrologist and one of my very best girlfriends. It was epic to get to sit down, have this really deep cosmic musing conversation with her. And my advice is grab your journal now because this woman is about to drop some serious wisdom. Enjoy. Hello, beautiful lady. Thank you for being here. Of course. I'm so excited to be here. I was just saying how soothing it is for my soul to hear your voice. Oh my gosh. Likewise, sister. We were just joking that we're just going to hang out and record it. (laughs) (laughs) You all get to be flies on the wall of a sister hangout with Angel and Zahara. Yes. Couple of snails we are. (laughs) Yeah. We have, I mean, should we tell that story? It's like kind of a weird jump off point, but we have a personal joke about being snails. I think we should just go right there. (laughs) Okay. Why don't you share that very interesting tale? Okay. Where were we and what were we doing? (laughs) So set the scene, everyone in your mind's eye, we're going to just take one deep breath. And when you exhale, you will be teleported to Burning Man. Oh, and then that exhale, see yourself at Burning Man, and you know you're just living your life, dressed up to the nines, not wearing that many clothes, but the clothes you are wearing are dazzling. And you're on your adventure, you're with your friends. Not only are you with your friends, but you're with me an angel. And not mm-hmm. only are you with me an angel, but you're with us as we're rolling out with a crew of epic women for one of our best friends' bachelorette parties at Burning Man. Pringle, you guys just heard last, oh, not the last episode, episode before, Rachel Pringle's bachelorette party. (laughs) Exactly. And so we're rolling out hard, celebrating Rachel, manifesting all the magic in the flow. And out in the distance, you know, like when you're in the desert and from far off, you start to see a mirage and you're not sure if it's real or not. That was kind of the sensation as we started to arrive slowly into a set of human beings dressed up as snails, slowly humping each other (laughs) in the middle of the desert. Like when I say slowly. Snail slow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it in the most literal sense of the word. They were belly down, dressed up as snails and inching, centimetering themselves towards each other. And several of them were literally piled on top of each other, like having snail sex. (laughs) And Angel and I just like lost our minds that this is what we're doing right now, that this is happening right now. Those are my favorite moments, actually. The moments when you are jaw dropped, awe in wonder, and it's just like it short circuits your brain that whatever's happening is actually happening, but it is. Yeah. Like the absurdity. That's one of my favorite things about Burning Man is the theater and the absurdity. You're like, wait, 
we're riding along and we're all, mind you, dressed as in dominatrix theme, like kink, uh-huh. right? For mm-hmm. Rachel's bachelorette. Yeah. So like all wearing most of us the same wig, 20 girls, and we kept losing each other. Where's this person? Where's that person? I'm right here. I'm right here. No one can see each other because everyone's in <laughs> the same wigs. And we come across the, across the snail crossing that Zahara just described. And it's like, what? This is so absurd. Like, what is this? <laughs> Everyone needs a little absurdity in their life. So that's just a little entry point into that little joke we have. It was a personal joke and now it's a personal joke with all of us around the snail flow, you know, Mm -hmm. finding the moments in life that have you awestruck. Mm -hmm. So I love that that's our entry point. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. And I love that that's your intro. But I'd also (laughs) love to know, tell us a little about your story and can you lead us up to your spiritual awakening and just take us through that journey a little bit, if you can. I mean, small question. But. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a vast question. I feel like I've lived so many different lifetimes in this one lifetime. You know, growing up, I grew up in St. Louis and I was training for the Olympics in Taekwondo from age eight until 20. And that was my original passion. And I'm so blessed to have experienced that 12 years of fire because what it did is it gave me a reference point for what it feels like to be truly on fire, passionate for something. And within that time period, you know, at 18, I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas. And a couple of years into my time there, I got sick and had a spinal surgery. I have scoliosis. So I had a spinal fusion, one when I was 13 that I recovered from. And that was a huge part of my, you know, an expression of the passion I had for Taekwondo. The doctors told me I would never fight again. And, you know, I refused to believe that. So I started walking until I could you know, jog and jog until I could run and run until I could kick and kick until I could spar again and really get back into it. So I was able to recover after a couple of years from that initial spinal fusion, which was a very invasive surgery initially. And once the rods, they put rods in your spine to straighten it, once they were fused fully, then I was able to go back to full contact sport. So, you know, the following years, I was training full time and the best team in the world at the time was based in Houston, which is where Rice University is located as well. So that's why I had my eyes on Rice, ended up going to school there. And a couple of years in, I got sick again, ended up being in the hospital for 18 days and had another spinal surgery where they thought that the rods had gotten infected. It turns out they weren't. It ended up being a misdiagnosis. It was a whole wild experience. So, but they ended up taking the rods out because they had gone into my back anyway. So they removed the rods and found out ultimately it was a a double kidney infection. It was just such a wild experience. But then I was recovering from the spinal surgery again anyway, because they went in there to see if the rods had, had gotten infected. So after that, the recovery from that and the experience, you know, the impact of that ultimately took me out of the sport. And That was when I kind of transitioned more into what I would call my mainstream phase, (laughs) more of a mainstream (laughs) lifestyle. You know, graduated from Rice University as an athlete. My desire was, it was like I was always on the hunt after that. Retrospectively, I realized it in the moment I didn't. I was always on the hunt again after that for that passion feeling, you know, that I had that was such a blessing to have a reference point of. And, you know, so I figured, you know, I'm now I'm 22, graduate college. The next best thing would be to, you know, at least represent professional athletes to stay in the sports world if I'm not actually 
pursuing the Olympic dream myself, I thought, you know, let's go into sports. So I ultimately, after many years, became the executive director of marketing for one of the biggest major league baseball agencies in the country. And then the same for one of the biggest NFL agencies in the country. So I worked in sports and entertainment marketing for many years through my 20s. And that part of my journey was such a wild ride because it was a time that the whole world reflected back to me that I should be happy, that I was successful, that this is what success looks like to have achieved that level of success at such a young age was very rare. And, you know, that experience for me was an incredible lesson in ego attachment. And what occurred was my sense of self-worth became completely tied up in the title. So my sense of value was directly connected to the fact that I was in this powerful position in the, you know, sports world. And so as the years went on, when that same passion feeling that I was aware was not this never came in. And I was promoted at a young age into that executive director position. I was able to see from the, the, what I would say, quote, like the top, that there was no more up to go. It was such a blessing. Like I could have just coasted there for the next 20 years. And the blessing in that was that I could see that I wasn't happy, that there was nothing more to this, that I could have just plateaued out and wrote it out. But it was in the journey of recognizing and realizing and receiving inside of myself that this isn't actually for me, that in contrast to the fire and the passion I felt in my Taekwondo days when nobody had to tell me to get up at 6 a.m. to train three times a day, to be a full-time student at Rice University and training six hours a day, nobody had to tell me to do that. It was just completely self-sourced. By After many years in the sports business, I got to the point where I could barely drag myself out of bed to get up and go to work. My sense of life force, my sense of vitality just completely drained out of my system. And it was because that industry for me wasn't feeding my spirit. It wasn't actually in alignment with what I'm here to do. But what it was, it was a socially conditioned experience of living into a timeline that I was told is what success looks like. That if you do this, if you go down this timeline, you'll make money and you'll have a nice family and you'll be successful and you'll be respected. And then that's when you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And so it was a journey for me. It was a death process to you know, be able to let go of that position and discover who it is that I really am without it. And so it was you know, the first agency I was with the Major League Baseball agency. I ended up getting depressed. It got to a point where I had floor to ceiling windows on Rodeo Drive, an assistant, intern, all of it. And I would close all my blinds, lock my door, and just cry in my office. It got to that point. And so eventually I gave notice that I was going to, you know, leave. And during that, they asked me to stay for another couple months for like an easy transition with the players. And it was during that couple month period that I got scared and to fully let go. And I had stayed in touch with my, where I interned it in Houston, which is an NFL agency that I worked for ultimately. And they offered me, it just turned out, right? Like the universe is like, okay, if you don't learn the lesson the first time, if you don't fully let go the first time, we'll bring that same lesson right back around to you. 
So they just happen to be opening another position for this, like literally the same position, the executive marketing director position at their new office in Dallas. And so I ended up taking that position and just telling myself that, okay, it maybe it's just living in out, maybe it's just the city and I've been in the same sport for so many years now, maybe changing this, the location in the sport will give me more life or excitement that I'll get revitalized again. And that was just the ego playing a trick, you know, to be able to stay, not go through the death, to be able to still have the title, still have the job, still have the security, still have it make sense to the rest of the world, what I was doing. And of course, the whole cycle repeated itself after another couple of years. I got really depressed. And when you get, I got to that place at that time, I went to mainstream medical doctors, Western medical doctors, and I would share with them, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm not happy. I have this life that I'm supposed to be happy, but I'm depressed. I, I can barely get out of bed in the morning and I have a hard time falling asleep. And so their answer is there's a pill for that. So then I became dependent on prescription medication. And that ignited my journey, my ultimately what became my dark night of the soul, which was the journey of getting off of all those prescriptions, which after, you know, being on prescriptions and utilizing something outside of yourself, like a prescription medication to either enhance your mood or give you energy or help you fall asleep for a long enough period of time. It's like the medicine is augmenting a life. It's holding the life together. That's not actually yours. And so I had eventually, I talked to my doctor and asked for recommendation for medical leave. I knew that I wasn't going to get off the prescriptions myself. I knew that I wasn't happy and I hit my wall. I hit my edge and I realized I'm going to have to go through this, a death process and I need help. And so at that point, I gave the recommendation for medical leave to my bosses, NFL agency, and they approved it. They were amazing and supportive. And I went to treatment in Newport Beach and ended up getting off all of the prescription medications. And then I realized, holy shit, like I can't go back. I can't go back. <laughs> I can't go back, you know, because that life was never for me. It was prescribed for me, ironically, just like the medication was, just like the pills were. I was living a life that was prescribed for me rather than one that was inscribed in me, that mm. I was meant to live in this lifetime. And so I had to go through that and it was a deep death process. The part of me that had generated my worth from the title had to go through a let go, had to go through a death like a phoenix, all the way burning everything into the ashes, the relationships from my old life, people who were drinking and drugging and leaning on substances for their sense of worth and happiness in the world, you know, unhealthy relationships with men, all of the things that were reflecting the unhealthy relationship I had with myself in order to sustain a life that was not really mine had to go through a death process. And that was very uncomfortable. And so, but it was worth it. And what I realized when I was in that first wave of it, once the deeper discomfort and I came into a place of acceptance of like, okay, I'm doing this. And that like warrior spirit comes in. Then I realized that feeling of timelessness that I felt in the Taekwondo days, that feeling of passion, that feeling of devotion that I felt in the Taekwondo days, I started feeling that again, ironically, in like group therapy sessions. My facilitatorship started coming online through my own willingness to go through my own process of being facilitated. I realized mm. I love, I could sit here all day. And fortunately, I was on the lighter end of the spectrum in terms of, you know, the, the deep, deep dark. I was in treatment with 
you know, women who have been in, you know, in and out of treatment six, seven, eight times on the verge of death, heroin addicts, things like that, where I was what they would call like in the penthouse still. Like I still had my job. They were paying me to work remotely while I was there to get off the prescriptions. Well, what we all didn't know is that I wouldn't end up going back to the job, but I was in a place where I was choosing to be there. But I was surrounded by people who were not choosing to be there, but they were there because out of desperation or their family interventions and things like that. And what I found inside of myself was the part of me that is fully capable and also is lit on holding space for that, holding space for that level of transformation, for that level of healing, for that level of trauma. And so I ignited in me a realization of this is what I want to do. And so letting go of the sports, you know, career after that was, you know, it was challenging, but it was also very natural. It was very clear. Mm. And in that let go, I call it my incubation period. I still had like six months on my lease in Houston still. And I realized I was going to move back. I decided I was going to move to cat back to California. And I went back to Houston for that last six months on my lease and I called it my incubation period. And that was the beginning of my awakening. It was from treatment back home to Houston in my incubation period. And that's when I completely devoted myself to meditating every single day, yoga every single day, let go of relationships that no longer served me. I got into evolutionary astrology and began my apprenticeship program, devoted myself to the exploration of consciousness and surrounding myself by people who are also on the path, being radically, deeply honest with myself, being in deep ownership with myself, being willing and daring to claim the life that I could feel was pulling me forward, the one that contained within it, that Taekwondo feeling. Mm. And so after that incubation period, that's also when I got my dog, Hugo, my soul dog, who's just turned seven years old. So I got him. This was all just about seven years ago when I had my awakening. And it's been quantum and a rapid evolutionary process ever since then, because that same level of devotion, that same level of focus that I had served my Taekwondo career, that same level of energy has been given to this. Mm. And the this being my freedom Mm. from pain, from fear, from trauma, from constriction, from old stories, from obligation, from expectation, from being a version of myself that is not and has not ever actually been me, but has come from innocently the little girl who's been afraid, who would be willing to give up parts of herself in order to make other people or the world happy. And so it's been a transformation for me to continue to claim more of myself. And the more of myself I claim, the more of other human beings that synchronize into my field, I can support. The more people I can support, the more I can support them in claiming themselves from a place of integrity. So these last seven years have been profound. I've you know, gone deep in you know, spiritual psychology and plant medicine work, just really devoting myself to this path. And at this point, I consider myself to be a liberation artist. Mm. I've made it my masterpiece to liberate one's spirit from everything that is not actually them and to liberate all the confines and the old stories and the misbelief structures that would say you can't do anything. We may choose not to do something, but anywhere that we find a limitation, like I believed for many years, I was never that I'm not an artist, but over the last year and a half, I've written many 
profound spoken word pieces that I'm so proud of, including one that was launched on the Unify platform, which has a huge following on Facebook. And I just feel so proud of that piece called The Blessing and the Virus. I've done two public dances. I've started singing. I sing in ceremony space. I'm now playing the ukulele. There's so many ways that we limit ourselves based on the beliefs that we've allowed to be imprinted on ourselves when we were younger. And it's such a passion of mine to discover how to disentangle ourselves from those belief structures and the identities that are born from them so that we can become the most free, authentic, expressed version of ourselves. And so it's been such a pleasure to to really walk that path for myself and then walk it side by side with others. Thank you, sister. Hearing you talk about being a liberation artist, do you feel like something is at the root of, let's say, the limitation, like the ways in which we are not liberated or we don't liberate ourselves? Like, what do you think is at the root of that with all the work that you do? Is there something at the root of it? Fear, always. Yeah. We'll be right back. Enrollments are officially closed for the Lit Up For Life membership and to all of my Lit Up Sister Goddesses and God Exes listening, I am celebrating the F out of you guys right now and having such a blast doing this deep work together. And for those of you who are new to the community or the podcast and who may have missed enrollments, or for those of you who are in and ready for the next level, we are opening up applications for the group coaching container, Awaken. Awaken is a 12-week program that takes you through the 12 most important initiations for any spiritually awakened woman. We walk through initiations like the higher self, divine communication, money and power, sensual embodiment, pussy worship, aka tantra, healing the sister wound, inner child integration, all the things, so much more. And we do it all in a powerful container of sisterhood. Now, doing this type of work in a safe container of women has literally been the most profoundly transformative and pivotal experience of my own personal spiritual development. And that's why I am so beyond ecstatic to have this offering for all the women or femme identifying folk who are feeling called forward into this kind of in-depth spiritual education and initiation into deep sisterhood and community support. Every single week, you'll have a live transformational lecture on the week's initiation or topic. You'll have a group coaching call with me and six other sister goddesses and a custom designed guided practice to hold your own ceremony every week for each initiation. So if you are ready, head on over to www.litupforlife.com forward slash awaken for all the info and how to apply. Always fear. I had a feeling. (laughs) There's always a fear at the root of it. And, you know, there's so many ways to dismantle fear. And this is a huge part of the Liberation Dojo, which is my signature event experience that I offer. I've been. It's amazing. Yeah. I know you guardianed for it, which was so special. And the Liberation Dojo is essentially a container, a ceremonial container that is solely built on the intention to identify where your fear-based edges are at, which you could also say where your limitations are at, and to expand beyond them in real time to meet the you on the other side. Mm. And so there's so many ways to you know, work with the energy of fear. 
And one essential ingredient that I find is willingness, Mm. just willingness. It's not perfection, you know, it's willingness to show up, just show up, just show up and to be willing, willing to lean in, willing to see it, willing to fall, willing to fail, willing to be seen, willing to succeed, willing to wobble, willing to mess it up just willing to be willing. And that's a great place to start. Mm. That's a foundational and essential ingredient. And once the willingness is there and we're no longer in that avoidant resistance, we still may be willing and have resistance. But if there's no willingness and we're just in resistance to, or carefulness or avoidance, lack of acceptance, we're, that's the fear driving it. We're not going to be able to get into it. So just asking yourself the question as a beginning, are you willing to move towards the fear? Are you willing to move towards the edge? Are you willing to move towards the discomfort? And then if the answer is yes, then we start to unlock because now you're willing to feel whatever it is that the fear has been protecting you from feeling. That's all of it. My partner, Oren, says the most powerful thing, all fear is a fear of feeling. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting. I heard something quite profound the other day and I can't even remember who said it or where I heard it but actually it may have been one of my teachers said often discomfort is more pleasurable than denial but we're so wired to avoid pain that we don't even realize when you go into the center of it that's the release it's like Mm. so speaking of fear my Scorpio sister what scares you the most where is your fear edge Mm. so wild because you would think it would be like doing a dance in front of a group of strangers or something, or like just singing in front of an audience. And, you know, those things bring up nerves in me, but the deeper fear, it would be like a fear of abandonment, a fear of hurting someone, a fear of doing something that would cause the loss of love. Mm. It's usually connected, the deeper fears for me are connected to loss of love in some form. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I see that Mm -hmm. so often in the work I do, and I'm sure you do as well, that like fear so often comes back to relationship, like how we relate to others or what will they think of me? Will I be accepted or rejected or abandoned? And Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious, how do you see fear play out in your relationships? And what are the tools you guys, you and your partner, Oren, most frequently use or friends like to Mm -hmm. move past that? Yeah. I mean, in all ways, in my romantic relationship, the fear, we could pinpoint it to like fear of heartbreak, which is its own form Mm -hmm. of loss of relationship, right? And, you know, fear of in friendship, like fear of rejection or fear of being exiled or not included or something, you know, like along those lines, I think are common ones as well in friendship. And so they're similar energetics, but also different based on whether you're working with, or I, or you, if you're resonating with these are working with romantic or relation friendship energetics. Mm -hmm. So with my romantic relationship, there's definitely a very conscious working with the energy. So we go through a life death life cycle often, like we'll go through these like mini deaths, Oren and I, and Mm. we're most often conscious of it when it's happening. So it's in the conscious relational field between my partner and I, that there's been a deep fear of having my heart broken. And from that has been 
or you could say a lack of trust in the masculine from trauma that I went through with my father, right? That I can't lean into it, that it's going to fall away. And we can all find the root of our fear-based patterning because there was a time where that fear manifest itself and you felt the feeling that was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes not to feel that again. Mm. Whatever that was, never again, right? Mm. So like our human animal, our little one is like, we'll go into fight or flight in order to Mm. avoid the death that is experiencing that, whether Mm. it's abandonment or abuse or rejection or heartbreak or however it manifests, you know, for you, they're similar in the field. And so with Orin and I, we've had the awareness that that has been a present line that's been in the transformational process for me. So it's been such a gift to be a conscious partnership where we're teaming up on it. So Mm. of course, at times he's going to show up as the character in my reality that it seems like is going to break my heart or, you know, in a pattern of either leaving or needing space or getting angry and that energy activating my nervous system. Mm. In those moments, we'll recognize my reaction to that, which will be to go into a state of need or codependence, right? Mm. And so there can be a like a victim stance in that, like needing him to show up in a certain way and that if he leaves or is upset or whatever, that somehow that's not okay or t- hitting me in a way that's like, almost hitting the same chord as my father wounding, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we work with it consciously, there's a recognition that actually him coming in and if he needs space in a moment, if, and that's, let's say that's triggering the fear of abandonment, that I can't lean into the masculine or whatever. Him mm-hmm. not leaving in that moment, right? Like although any woman who has a similar thing, and I think it's common for a lot of women, not all women, but many, that it'll be like wanting more of his attention. He's needing space and that triggering a feeling, right? Mm -hmm. So if he were to come in, in that moment, what it would do is pacify the fear. And I would need him to come in and pacify it every time so that I don't have to feel that. Mm. But in working with it consciously, I recognize at this point, and as it continues to lighten and evolve, that when I get activated in that way, it's actually better for him to go and to follow what he actually needs for himself so that I can grow into the woman, the me that I am and who I actually am beyond the trauma that is happy for him to have space, that is happy for him to be able to create that time for himself or happy for him to be able to express his irritation or his anger without getting so activated as if you know, my dad's yelling at me and I'm in trouble or it's dangerous or there's a threat because that's not Mm -hmm. how he's actually showing up. It's just hitting that wound, right? Mm -hmm. So I can actually, I want to hold space for him to be upset or angry or feel whatever he needs to feel as well. In order for us to be in union and for it to be balanced, it isn't up to him to lower his volume and make sure that he's not triggering me. That's not the relationship that I want to have. So working with it consciously, that would be us pacifying and working around the fear. If he were like, don't do that. It's activating me. So lower your voice and don't leave and stay with me until I feel better. And then you can leave. That's a disempowered codependent dynamic. That's what we're breaking. That's what we're healing. And that's what we're transforming. So we're slaying it. I'm so proud of us, you know, and we do it consciously. We do it as gently as we can, but we know what's happening. We know that it's going to be hard. And sometimes in, in his leaving or his upset or expression of upset or whatever, it might further amplify the inner child in me that feels like she's in trouble or did something wrong or is about to get her heartbreak and or be abandoned. But my higher self is online enough now that I know how to hold myself in that. 
So it's a welcome thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not a comfortable thing, but it's a welcome thing to know, oh, there's transformation happening here. There's a healing happening here. And this is an opportunity for me to prove myself to myself, for me to build trust in myself, for me to see that I don't need him or anyone or anything outside of me to know that I can be okay in this feeling. And when I meet the edge of that feeling, the one I was afraid to feel, the heartbreak feeling, the unknown feeling, the he might leave feeling, this might not work feeling, the doubt feeling, all of that destabilizing emotional energy field, if it's always him having to come in and make sure I don't feel that, there's no healing, there's no change, we're stuck, Mm. right? So in the romantic partnership, what I really love is that we can work with it consciously. It doesn't always make it comfortable, but it makes it conscious. It can be quite quantum because I'm not resisting what's happening. So I'll just let myself kind of die into the emotional experience and let it flood me and feel it, go down to the beach, be with myself powerfully, ask myself what it is that I need, give myself what it is that I need and come back exponentially more empowered than I was Mm -hmm. when I was being the version of myself that needed him to show up in a certain way. And then ironically, when I'm in that empowered state and I've been with myself and the thing that I was afraid to feel previously, he's attracted to me like a moth to the flame. Mm-hmm. He wants to give me everything that I need. And now I no longer need it. I enjoy it. I appreciate it, but it's not coming from a lack. It's not coming from a codependency. And so that's been a, a part of the journey on the romantic front. And I can also talk about it, which is a little bit different texturally on the friendship front. But first, I don't know if you have anything you want to add or any questions on that on the romantic front. Yeah, it just sounds like a beautiful example of inner resourcing. You know, you Mm -hmm. talk about like you don't want to re-experience that trauma with your father or for most of us it is a parental trauma around how we relate and how we're loved or lack thereof and then we get into these coping mechanisms of avoidance and it's so beautiful to hear you illustrate of going towards the pain like we were talking about in a way that allows the little one inside of you that's so afraid of that pain or re-experiencing that trauma to realize that, yes, maybe in that time you weren't resourced enough as a child or a teenager to support yourself through the pain. So we kind of had to shut down. It's like appreciation in a way for that coping mechanism because it got us to where we are, but then re-showing or re-parenting that little inner one that you actually can resource yourself hearing like you go to the beach and you Ask, check in about your needs and you fulfill those and you resource yourself to move through the pain so that you know, oh, actually I can do this. It's not my favorite flavor, but I can do it. And therefore Mm -hmm. I don't need to avoid it. It's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Something I wanted to chat about, it's on this line around fear and love, Mm -hmm. which we're talking through. And one of my teachers recently said that, and I found it very profound, but just so simple. She said, fear is one of the deepest controllers of the nervous system, but love goes deeper. Mm. And so I wonder, like, do you believe that or does that thought inspire anything in you that you want to share or riff on? Mm. Yeah. Love goes deeper than everything. Love goes wider than everything. Love goes higher than everything. Every time there's a fear energetic that's being activated and you can become aware of it, a great question to ask is, how can I love myself here more? 
So Mm -hmm. the parts that are the most rejected, the parts that you consider the most ugly about yourself, the parts that you consider the most shameful about yourself. There was such a reclamation for me around my own sexual energy when I started to realize moments from, you know, when I was younger and earlier on in my sexual life where I started feeling shame around my own sexuality and going back to the one at those ages and seeing where she started believing that she's bad or doing something wrong. And instead of neglecting, denying, ignoring that part, going towards it and finding like, wow, my love and seeing through the eyes of your higher self, the love that's present there, the innocence that's present there, the forgiveness at those ages and seeing where she started believing that she's bad or doing something wrong. And instead of neglecting, denying that part, going towards it and finding like, wow, my love and seeing through the eyes of your higher self, the love that's present there, the innocence that's present there, the forgiveness that's wanting to be had there, that's all love. Love is the remedy always. And so it's how can you love yourself more? Wherever Mm -hmm. the fear is, that's showing where the parts that are being protected are. And Mm -hmm. why are the parts being protected? Because they didn't get the love that they needed at the time. And so they're not trusting that the love will be present in those parts, in those places. And so the protection is protecting those unloved parts. Mm. And so how can we love those parts more? Seeing the fear like a heat-seeking missile or like a indicator, like an obvious indicator of where love is being called for. Mm. Because whatever the fear is protecting is the part that needs the love. Yeah. I love Matt Conaway says like, whatever arises, love that. Like it's the next part of you in line to be loved. And you're kind of saying, yeah, like wherever the fear is, it's like, oh, next part in line to be loved. That's it. (laughs) Step right up. That's it. (laughs) I want to explore the other side of the coin a bit here too. So the other evening, Patrick and I were watching, I don't know if you've seen The Social Dilemma. I have, yes. Yeah, whoa, absolutely. For anyone listening, like this is required watching. It's, Mm -hmm. wow. But one of the people in the documentary said something that was so paradigm shifting for me as an eternal optimist. I really see myself as a true optimist at the core and it serves me in many ways. I'm very risk resilient, which is hugely beneficial as an entrepreneur, but I'm pretty sure it was Jaron Lanier. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure he said in the documentary that the critics are the true optimists because they believe that things can be done better than they are currently. And that mm. struck me as incredibly profound and then made me start to have this deeper rumination on my own inner critic and kind of maybe even a newfound appreciation. So Mm. what are your thoughts on the idea that the critic is the true optimist? Mm. That's such an interesting framing on that. Very powerful. So what is the job of a critic, right? Like when we think of like a movie critic or a food critic, right? So yes, the critic is there to see what's wrong so that it could be made better. Mm right? So that we have to be willing and able to see what's wrong or what's off or what we might prefer to be different in order to express change, in order to create change. If we're unable to work with the energy of discernment and vigilance, these are all very like Virgo qualities. It's interesting because we just came through Virgo season. The sun has just transitioned into Libra. The energy of the critic was very much alive over this last phase. And there's a fine line, right, between the healthy critic, right, just like being willing to look with a discerning eye at your life and at yourself and kind of take inventory and 
judgment and being judgmental and holding yourself, paralyzing yourself in self-criticism or self-judgment. What would you say defining, like for those listening, like how do we define the difference between judgment or discernment? So like a judgment, judging something, judging yourself feels like a sentence. Mm. There's like, you're making a judgment, a definitive judgment. It's not fixed because you can forgive these judgments and transform these judgments through being willing to identify them, which is being willing to critique, being willing to look, being willing to check it out, being willing to see where am I holding these judgments? Where am I believing that there's something wrong with me? Where am I believing that I'm bad? Where am I believing? Where am I judging myself? That's a sentencing. Think of like a judge, like, and, you know, (laughs) guilty, (laughs) judge, judged, right? The critic, I like the word critique a little better. Mm. Like, can I give you a critique, right? Like, can I take a look? Can we look with a little discernment? Can we put a magnifying glass on it? There's a lightness to it. As long as we work with it consciously, because certainly critique can easily, or if you're being critical, Mm. that's like a negative lens. Like I'm looking with a critical lens. So there's critical being negative. And then there's like critical thinking, critiquing something, looking with a discerning eye, that laser beam focus and kind of scanning the field and seeing what is out of alignment. And if there's something out of alignment, it's a huge thing to scan for is where we're holding fixed judgments Mm. and being willing to ask, is that true? Yeah, totally. It seems like judgment is like a label, like you're saying, and whereas discernment is a choice. It's like I'm assessing the data to choose with my Mm -hmm. free will Mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm assessing the data to label and create false certainty. For sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sort of feels like. I'm also kind of thinking as I was ruminating on this after watching that documentary and then like hearing this conversation, I'm thinking, how can I like with my cycle, for example, I'm definitely more critical the week before my bleed. And so I'm like, mm. huh, is there a way for me to bring my critic? And I kind of do it like I tend to edit mm-hmm. words or anything I'm writing, I edit in that week because I'm a much better editor because I'm so cutthroat mm. in uh-huh. a way. I'm like this, no, no, got to go, got to go. And so it's mm. like, it just had me thinking. And I wonder even as women, whether you have a cyclical nature or not, How can we actually bring our critics rather than feel like, oh, we just need to get rid of them. They're a mean girl. How can we instead like welcome them into the light and like utilize their high expression? It's kind of cool that Virgo season just ended as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an awareness game, really. Yeah. I think it's an awareness game connected to the critic. It's like being conscious and aware of your come from and just staying woke on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's simple and not easy, but a lot of fun. For sure. (laughs) For sure. You kind of touched on it. And I mean, you're many, many things with exceptional gifts, but you're also a badass astrologer. So I feel like I can't let you go without (laughs) tapping into that a little. This will be released within a month. So it'll still be relevant if you feel inspired. Could you give us a little astro download? Mm. Yeah. I mean, What feels very present currently is the Mars retrograde. Mm. And I believe that will Mars will still be going in retrograde until I believe November 13th. Okay. So, you know, it should still be pertinent when this episode is released. And Mars is the energy of fear. (laughs) Wow. It's the energy of the warrior archetypally. 
Mars is the god of war. Mars rules Aries and also Scorpio. So in connection to Aries, it's that warrior energetic, the courage, the fearless, that high aim is fearlessness, right? But what is true fearlessness? It's not actually having no fear. It's having fear and being willing. There we go back to the word and being willing to do it anyway, to feel it anyway, to say it anyway, to risk losing it anyway, to do it anyway, if it's coming from your truth, if your heart, if your true north is beating on it. So the Aries energy, Mars energy is also connected to like the fool in the tarot, Mm -hmm. which sounds like a negative card, but it's actually really not. There's such lighthearted childlike energy with this Aries Mars archetype. That's also the energy of devotion. And like, you know, the fool energy is like the one who's willing to kind of leap before looking or leap before strategizing and figuring it all out because someone has to do it. Someone has to try the thing that's never been done before. Someone has to have the courage to face off with the fear and go across the edge and explore that terrain and that unknown and then turn around and look back and say, okay, guys, it's safe. Let's go. Right. And sometimes it won't be, but they're willing to risk it. It reminds me of that quote. And those who were seen dancing were thought to be mad by those who could not hear the music. That's it. Mm. So, you know, Mars in its, you know, direct motion, which is from the perspective of Earth when it looks like it's moving forward in the zodiac, is an invitation based on where it's touching sensitive areas in your chart to claim the high expressions of these energies in your life. So that might be if it's in a relational field in your chart, it might be an invitation to express yourself or have a conversation you've been afraid to have and bring in that warrior energy into that sphere of your life by honoring your boundaries, setting and honoring your boundaries, you know, exploring your relationship to, you know, either victimhood or perpetrator. There's the whole spectrum, the hunter and the prey that's represented by Mars and Aries. So are you on the prey side of the spectrum being, you know, people pleasing eggshells, being careful, you know, keeping yourself small, or are you on the hunter side of the spectrum? You know, overdeveloped boundaries, you know, unwilling to be vulnerable or let people into your heart, having a super sharp sword and just super reactive and saying things that may not impact in a way that directly represents your intention, things like that. Those are distorted expressions of Aries from the hunter side down to the prey side and everything in between. So checking yourself based on where Mars is touching in your chart as to these particular energies and bringing in more of the high Mars more of the pioneering energy, more of the willing energy, more of the warrior energy. So Mars now going in retrograde is a halting in a way. Mars is very action-oriented. It likes to move forward. It likes to do and to go and to be, right? Be powerful in the world and be seen and adventure, right? It's very much an action-oriented energetic. So when Mars goes retrograde, it can create a halting energetic that can feel like you know, it's like hard to move forward very clearly. Mm. And it doesn't mean that that's the fate. It means that the retroactive, the retrograding energy is re, it's going back to positions in the sky that it has passed already. It's going back to positions in your life and your experience that it's already taken one pass by. So it's giving you an opportunity to revisit relational, material, career, financial situations where you may have showed up in any level of a distorted expression of that Mars energy. So what I just described from the over excess of fire energy to the under excess of fire energy to the under use of it, right? So some of us could stand to cultivate a little more 
truth teller, a little more (laughs) whistleblower, a little more willingness to say how we really feel, a little more power in our boundaries. You know, some of us could stand to generate some more of that. Some of us could stand to bring forward a little bit more diplomacy. Mm. You know, some of us could stand to bring forward a little bit more tactfulness in our delivery, right? So the Mars retrograde is going back to these positions it's touched in the past and asking us through the halt. It's the halt isn't trying to stop us. It's trying to give us an opportunity to take that inventory, like through the discernment and that critical, healthy, critical lens of where in my life and what in my life is coming up now between now and November 13th to give me opportunities to reclaim more of my fire energy and its healthy expression. So it's most balanced expression. Man fire. <laughs> oh yeah, girl. I've been feeling this one, especially connected to boundaries. It's a big one. Oh yes, yes. We were kind of touching on that before we hit record. Do you feel inspired to riff on that a little? Yeah. I mean, so for me personally, and as I just mentioned, we all have very different configurations when it comes to, you know, fire energy and, you know, how we set and hold boundaries or how we don't, right? And one survival mechanism that I've identified that, you know, was developed in me early on and having a very fiery father with very, you know, who would express strong, assertive, aggressive energy is I learned how to quite literally bend over backwards in, in order to stay safe. That's a survival mechanism. So that looks like people pleasing, you know, over yesing, over giving, abdicating myself in order to be sure the relationships around me are happier, that everyone else is getting what they need to, in order so that I feel safe and so that there won't be any consequence or withholding of love or withdrawal of love or, you know, that fear I spoke to, right? So that's one survival mechanism. It's been to not set boundaries, really. And in the past, what that has had looked like is really making myself susceptible to being walked all over, taken advantage of. And it was my own identity structure that would allow that to happen out of its own survival. And so that's my responsibility. It's no one else's. And so the journey has been growing in my capacity to listen to myself, honor my own needs, voice those needs clearly from a place of love, not from any overexertion or overpowering because that's also fear, but just to clearly state the boundaries and be willing to sit with the feeling of guilt or feeling bad because that's the other side of it, right? Like if we can sense as a highly sensitive being or empath that there's something that someone else desires and we desire something different and we voice that and stand in that, a feeling of feeling bad or guilt can come up and that can be a challenging one. So that would be the feeling that I've had resistance to feeling guilt or feeling bad or you know the loss of love, anything like that. So it's in the willingness and in the knowing to that it will come up one way or another to have to feel that. So that becomes the dojo. That becomes the Jedi gym is being willing, no longer willing to abdicate myself in any way, but to honor myself, to be devoted and committed to authenticity, to transparency, to 
love and integrity because I know where my heart is and where my heart's coming from and I can trust that. So I get to lean into that. And then knowing that when I do speak my truth and it's something different than what someone else might want or someone, you know, in my, let's say career world wants me to ask me to do something for them or do a project and I don't have time or I don't have space to be willing to say no and then be with the feeling of, did I not show up enough or guilt or feeling bad and then loving that, right? So like you said earlier, the fear is always an indication of where more love wants to go. So instead of keeping that in place by preserving, which would look like yesing the extra project when I don't have time or, or making sure that this relationship is okay or overextending myself in any way, because then I'm avoiding the feeling of feeling bad or that I might lose love. Instead, prioritizing and devoting to the authentic honoring of my spirit, knowing that we're an abundant universe and that what's truly in alignment for me and authentic for me and what I'm voicing has to also be in alignment for someone else. It has to also ultimately be a good thing because it's true. Mm. And so being willing to be with the truth and express that truth and then sit with whatever comes up underneath that, which might be the feeling bad, that's where the actual healing is happening around setting boundaries. It's in the willingness, again, here that word is again, right? It's in the willingness to feel guilt. It's in the willingness to feel guilt and be with that and wrap love around it and not act from the guilt, not act from the feeling bad and try to overdo or overgive in order to make that feeling go away, but rather wrap love around it by loving the one who's feeling guilty, loving the one who's feeling bad and reaffirming to that part of myself that your heart is good, your heart is pure, you're coming from an amazing place. You can trust yourself. You know where you're coming from, no matter how it it hits the other person, no matter how you're open, right? Staying open and honoring at the same time is the alchemy. And then being willing to be with yourself in whatever comes up there because you're always coming from the best intention. I do believe all of us are always doing our best Right. And so when we become aware that it's no longer our best to be, have noodly boundaries, now the work becomes okay, my best is to work with that and be honest because the kinds of relationships I want to have and you want to have and we all want to have are built on the foundation of truth. You know, what do you actually need? What's actually true for you right now? Mm. What do I actually need? What's actually true for me right now? And that's the only place from which we can find the highest harmony. That's the only place from which we can find union in relationship, romantically, in friendship, and in business. Totally. It's like boundary setting is this really radical act of self-love. And I feel like Mm -hmm. self-love can feel like an extremely abstract concept to Mm -hmm. so many people who maybe haven't felt like they've ever truly experienced it. So then it's like, okay, I get it, like the self-love thing, but how, you know, how and what is it? And so it's beautiful to hear your perspective on boundaries because I think that's an incredible example of self-love in action. And I'm curious, mm. what are the other things that you do? Like what does self-love in action look like to you? Are there tangible things you do to show yourself that you are loved by you? Oh yeah, for sure. And it's so interesting as you said that. It's so wild because the more I've you know grown on this path and we're infinite, right? Like there's always more. There's always more. We're never stagnating the more I realize that sometimes self-love does not always look like the most gentle thing in the moment. The gentle thing 
often the gentle feeling, the easy feeling, the rush of empowerment often comes after doing the hard thing, Mm. you know, doing the most honoring thing, doing the thing that is a branch and a fruit of your most deepest authentic truth, saying the thing you've been afraid to say, feeling the thing you've been afraid to feel, you know, doing the video that you haven't wanted to do, but you know, in your deepest, deepest heart, that self that you're loving actually desires to express themselves in that way. But there's all the fear. So the gentle thing might say, okay, just don't do the video. That's more gentle today, right? Then you won't have to feel the thing. Okay. Just don't have the conversation today or say the truth because that would be more gentle. Then you don't have to feel the feeling of feeling bad or worry, you know? Oh, just do the extra project or whatever, because that might be more gentle in the moment. You won't have to feel the repercussion on the other side of it or pacify the fear of abandonment by asking the partner to stay with you beyond their threshold. That might feel more gentle in the moment, but actually being like, you know, for my partner, the example I gave earlier, no, like you should go because I need to know that I can be with myself in this. That doesn't feel more gentle in the moment. It feels more true. And it feels Mm -hmm. like I'm actually loving myself, you know, saying no to the extra project when I don't actually have time in the moment, even though I really want to, but I don't don't have space for it. I have to abdicate myself to do it. That doesn't feel more gentle, but it feels more true, Mm. right? Each one of these examples, it's not necessarily more gentle. It's like doing the video and having little hiccups and missing words and things like that, but posting it anyway, it doesn't feel more gentle. It feels more true. It feels more loving because it's you, because that is you, including yourself everywhere, including yourself in your expression, including yourself in your relationships, including yourself in your mission and your work, including all of yourself always, always is what love looks like to me, is what loving myself looks like to me. And then when those moments come and I feel the wobble, then all the things that we know and love, right? Like deep meditation, going down to the beach, taking a bath, calling a friend, asking for a massage, journaling, putting music on in my ceremony room and dancing and feeling myself, doing a pleasure practice, holding my own heart and crying and telling myself how much I love you and that I'm never going anywhere and you can trust me no matter what, that I am here. I am here and meaning it, meaning every word that I say when I transmit that to myself because myself knows whether or not I mean it. Mm. And so being in that place and coming from that place with myself is what love looks like, but giving the love where the love is actually being called for. And so not avoiding the places where the love is actually being called for, but rather moving straight towards them and loving myself right there. And then that I find creates more space for more compassion, for more connection, for more understanding of others when they're in their wobble and wherever they're at, it creates more space for everything, but we've got to create that space for ourselves first, Mm. you know, put your oxygen mask on first. I'm getting the image of the Ouroboro, the snake eating its own tail. Cause what I'm realizing in this conversation, like where we started it around moving towards fear and moving towards pain and the willingness. Mm. And now I hear you talking about moving towards self in the love as mm-hmm. well. And it's like, there's just this continual moving towards self willingness, as you would yeah. say, it's like, could it be that simple that every indicator within us is just asking us to move toward it, whether it's ecstasy or pain, love or bliss or tragedy. It's like that Ouroboro just eating its own tail. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. I could cosmic news with you all day, my love. Thank you 
so much. And before we wrap up, I want to do a few rapid fire questions if you're ready. Yes, let's do it. So someone comes to you and they're feeling really down and you can only give them one piece of advice. What do you say? Hmm. They're feeling really down. Hmm. I mean, I would ask, what do you need right now? Hmm. I would just ask, what do you need right now? Mm. And let whatever that answer is live. Mm. Love that. What's the most important thing from your perspective for a successful relationship? Transparency. Mm -hmm. If you could be any animal, which animal would you be? I think I know the answer. Oh, girl, you know I'll be a jaguar. (laughs) (laughs) My jaguar queen. Yeah. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? It would be to... Feel, be, and radiate bliss always in all ways, like no matter what. F yes. Like, <laughs> I think they call that enlightenment. Yes. <laughs> if you could only take one spiritual practice, one tool with you to a desert island, what would it be? Radical presence. Oof. You'd be killing it. <laughs> You're crossing the rapid fire queen. What's your favorite thing that you own? Oh my God. I mean, immediately I thought Hugo, but it's like so weird to even say I own him because he's like a living animal. He's my dog. But my favorite thing that is in my reality is Hugo. Like, I just fucking love this dog. This is the best. Yeah, he really is the best. He's, he's such best. a cutie pie. Uh-huh. He's deep. I do some soul gazing with him from time to time. For sure. He's <laughs> <It goes> deep. <laughs> so is there something you believe is true that other people think is crazy? Wow, that is a good question. Can't take credit for that one. I believe it's Tim Ferriss's. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yes, good question. I mean, certainly the plant medicine work that I do. I mean, plenty of people believe deeply in the magic of the medicine. And there are also plenty of people on this planet who would think that that is just totally crazy. That there's, you know, plant spirits that are in service to our collective, including plants, animals, the earth humans evolution. And I've just been in so many deep conversations with the different plant teachers and different plant medicines that I feel such a devotion and honoring of these medicines that I would say, you know, the deep work with the medicines would be one area of deep belief and reverence and devotion that I have that many people in the mainstream might just be like, that's just crazy. Mm. And I'd be like, you're wrong. You're wrong, honey. You got to experience it yeah. to experience it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you could eat one meal before you die, sorry to do that to you, what would mm. it be? <laughs> Man, a fettuccine Alfredo, if I'm going out anyway, I'd be like, I got to just have one more bowl. I'm vegan at this point in my life, but my favorite meal growing up was fettuccine Alfredo. I love that, like mm. the best bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. Is Alfredo a creamy sauce, like cabernet? Mm-hmm, like Parmesan creamy, <laughs> like the ultimate Parmesan creamy experience. Well, I will be there. I will come to that meal. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Perfect. Last one. If there was a universal answering machine and you could leave a 15-second note or a couple of sentences on it that everyone in the world would hear today, what would you say? Mm-hmm. Love yourself more in this moment and in this moment and in this moment, and in this moment, and that person over there, love them more in this moment, and in this one, and in that one too. Mm. Whoa, that just took me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that I felt like I was very like cliche, but 
true. <laughs> it's definitely not actually. That was profound. I felt like I was falling back, falling back, falling back, which is something I say in meditation sometimes, but mm-hmm. I felt that feeling of falling past layers and layers and layers. So you just took me somewhere really deep, my love. Mm. Thank you, Thank baby. You so much for being here, my snail Scorpio sister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a pleasure and an honor. And I hope we get to do this again really soon. Yes, please. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. This was so fun. Where can our listeners find you? Yes. So they can find me on Instagram at Zahara Zimring, Z-A-H-A-R-A-Z-I-M-R-I-N-G. And also my website is zaharazimring.com. You can also find me at the createcommunity.com, which is an incredible premium group coaching platform where we enroll once a month and it's a really, really special community. And I also offer the Liberation Dojo live and digital experiences. The next one is going to be November 19th. And so if you're interested in that, check out my website, zaharazimmering.com. And we can go from there. I'm excited to meet and connect with many of you who are listening and continue to explore together. Mm, Thank you so much, sister. Yeah, of course. Thank you, mama. Thanks for listening, beautiful, divine human beings. And remember, if you are feeling the call to go deeper in your spiritual transformation, if you are desiring to deepen your community, to have sisters walking on this path beside you, to have my one-on-one support and some in-depth spiritual initiations, transformations, and just profound healing and embodiment of ecstasy that you're so worthy of then come on over to www.litupforlife.com forward slash awaken. You're going to get all the info on the group coaching that's opening up soon and how to apply. I'll see you there.